Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. So let me do the launches. We were previously at 76, now 83. The main thing that caught my eye that's gone up is an Indian satellite, RISAT-2, and this is a radar mission. This is an X-band synthetic aperture radar. I think it's going to be used primarily for security issues. And the other thing that I saw was this Spark-1, which is a space plug-and-play research CubeSat. So, yeah, I mean, it's almost every month, isn't it? Something new has gone up. Shall we crack on with the news on the 22nd of May, 2019? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to come out with a quick one because it's basically a software update. GDAL 3 has been released, so this is a major release. If you're using GDAL in a production environment, you probably want to stay with GDAL 2 at the moment. But definitely if you want to go and have a look at all the newest and shiniest, then check out GDAL 3. Uh, some good stuff in there. One of the things that was quite interesting is there's a new driver for something called TileDB, which I hadn't come across before. That looks really cool. It basically represents data as dense or sparse arrays, and it can handle multiple dimensions. It's certainly an interesting concept. Only in the last couple of days, there was a OSGO community sprint, which pushed all the um, docs together for GDAL. Ah, okay. The attempt is to migrate the GDAL documentation into a read-the-docs format. The sprint, they managed to put all the GDAL docs into a 700-page PDF. So you want to be um, downloading this PDF because what an amazing resource. Yeah. No, no joking. Another very quick one today, the, what did I say it was? The 22nd of May is the launch day in the UK. So I'm sorry, uh, international listeners, but this is a bit UK focused of the Knowledge Transfer Network's Geospatial Insights Special Interest Group. What they're trying to do there is create a group that will try and stimulate cross-sector innovation and, and bring different communities effectively across the geospatial family together. Like I say, that only got launched today, but it's something interesting and I encourage as many UK listeners as possible to to check it out and, and get involved if they can. Yeah, lots of events going on this week, aren't there? Yeah. I seem to be doing very well at missing them all. <laughs> <laughs> How do you choose where to go? Yeah. yeah. You're sort of overwhelmed. Yeah, May seems to be the time, doesn't it, for events. May and September. I wanted to uh, give a nod to a blog post I saw on measuring air pollution from space. This is another Sentinel-5P by the Sentinel Hub. So Sentinel Hub is an excellent place to check out data sets. It sort of steps you through what all these different gases that are being measured are. I'm a big fan of the Earth browser, as you probably know. And it's just another great way of looking at this complex data set. And because now we've basically got a year, this data set takes on its temporal nature and you get to see there's some good animated examples of O3, I think it is, over the Atlantic Ocean throughout the course of a year. And it's, it's quite interesting. So linked 
to that in a Sentinel Hub way, I saw a tweet today from Sentinel Hub that was announcing the start of the Data Cube Facility Service project. Oh, yeah. So there's a whole host of different partners in on this. But this looks a really interesting idea. Because it came out just before we recorded this, I haven't looked at it in any detail. But it seems to be that they're trying to build a, a Data Cube sort of service uh, on top of existing solutions and one that will basically link in with things that exist like Sentinel Hub, CIOS Open Data Cube, Pangeo, things like that. I will put a link to this project and this announcement in the show notes and everyone will have time to read through it at their own leisure because I haven't yet had time to read through it in any proper detail. But I just think this is one of those things where we are getting to a stage where everything's coming together really nicely. It's just brilliant. I mean, it's so exciting what's happening in Earth Observation at the moment. I'm very, very conscious that you and I always end up talking about either US or, or European Earth Observation, but European Earth Observation at the moment in particular is doing so much. If you're not involved in European Earth observation, hopefully you find it interesting. And if there's similar stuff happening around the world that we're not aware of, please do let us know. We're always up for, for trying to shout about as many different things as possible. It's just these are coming loud and frequent. Check this out. It looks really, really good. A good link to that is the Living Planet Symposium. Yes. I wasn't there. You weren't there. So I only really saw it from afar. Seems to have been the the thing to have been at in 2019. Yeah, we missed the most <laughs> fashionable thing. <laughs> I find these things slightly difficult to follow remotely. What I do get is a lot of pictures of people's slides taken from the audience. I can see why that is done, but taken out of context, it's it's kind of difficult to see what was being told. And it would be great if those presentations were made available. Perhaps, perhaps they are. I think the opening session was live streamed. I didn't see anything else about any of the other sessions being live streamed or put on YouTube. Maybe they will be put on YouTube. Who knows? I knew a few people who were there. So not only through social media was I getting a lot of information back about what was happening, but also I was getting a lot of, sort of personal interaction with people who were out there. And the one thing I would say was consistent across everybody who was contacting me was that they were sort of awestruck with just how much was going on and how much was being reported on back to the community. Hopefully we'll get out either to the next one or to other events that are just as exciting and inspiring to be part of. The only sort of other thing that I wanted to mention is that I saw this release on Bloomberg, but Orbital Insight has announced that it's going to create Orbital Go, which they don't elaborate too much on because it's more of a sort of light story, but this, this idea that it's a portal on the Earth. So it's something that companies like Planet have talked about in the past. So it's one to keep an eye on. There are a swathe of companies in this space at the moment. The final thing I wanted to mention was that Radiant Earth Foundation are refocusing where they put their efforts. So away from their platform, which is a shame because I, I really liked some of the things they were doing in their platform. But then I suppose an organization doesn't survive on the basis of whether or not somebody likes some stuff. It's more to do with whether or not those people are using it. They've looked at what's important to them, what's important to the people they want to interact with, what's important to their long-term goals. And they've decided that they're going to refocus into developing open training libraries, machine learning models, technology standards, that sort of thing. So things that you've seen coming out of uh, Radiant Earth Foundation in 
the last year or so. So for the development of the platform and the various different things that are on there are going to be phased out. Really, they're going to be trying to work around the ML Hub Earth, which I don't know if you've come across, but that is really where they want to try and get sort of community-led commons for training data, models, standards for different machine learning applications, things like that. I think this is really positive. It's always nice, I find, when organizations look at what they're doing well, what isn't working quite so well, and then they flip what they're trying to do to focus on those good things that they do really well. And Radiant Earth Foundation is a brilliant organization that is really pushing some cool stuff in the machine learning area. So... Yeah, I, I wish them all success with this. Yeah, it's a super smart move. They're a non-profit, so they have to make difficult decisions. But where they're having their most impact is through the work like the ML Hub and sponsoring and helping out with stat and stuff like that. They're making change to our community. It's really impactful. I think it's a really good news article and a great way to finish our news for this week. So we're really, really chuffed to have Marcus Nettler with us of the uh, Grass open source software project and also of Mundialis, a company in uh, Bonn in Germany. Thank you very much, Marcus, for coming on. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to just briefly introduce yourself. But I just wanted to tell a little story quickly uh, about how we first met. And you probably won't remember this, but years ago, we were both involved on the Eden Project. And I was helping someone give a, a workshop. And I can't even remember where the workshop was, but it was using MapInfo. And I'd never come across open source before. I'd never heard of it, didn't have a, any concept of it. Mm -hmm. And you were the guy in the room who wasn't using MapInfo, you were using Grass. And I was just absolutely stunned because you, you were explaining how it, people collaborated and then gave it away. And it, it was able to do everything that MapInfo could do. And I, at that moment, I think, was one of those moments where suddenly something clicked and I was like, oh my God, this is the way that software should be produced. <laughs> so I just wanted to, to put that out there because I thought that was such a, one of those moments where, you know, just seeing the power of open source software and what Grass can do really changed my sort of, uh, well, my career, I suppose, in some respects, but certainly my outlook as to what geospatial software can do. Yeah, thanks much for uh, remembering that. So that's a while ago. <laughs> it was a long time. project. It was, I think, uh, 2005 to 2010 or 11 or something, maybe even uh, eight only. <laughs> No, it is true. It, it's something which also shaped my life, I would say, this open source idea. And I came to it pretty early. So as a student of uh, geography, I started a job at the University of Hanover in Germany. Like uh, in the first semester of physical geography, I started in a different institute to, to work on... Uh, basically, they put me in front of a workstation and said, look, this is this GIS software here. Can you please figure out how to use it? <laughs> we must say that was in 1993, uh, some time ago, but the software was new, not new at all, because it got started in 82 when I was still going to school. So in 93, I was sitting in front of this workstation. I had a bit of experience with that uh, already, but not with GIS at all. And so uh, I took the challenge and tried to figure it out and started to write small uh, texts, like cooking instructions and how to do this, how to do that. And this eventually evolved into more. 
and so like this I came to it almost uh, by chance still then I stick to this software and its development and so forth. So you're still involved now with the development of the software as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, um, I'm still the, uh, the chairperson of this project. Uh, let's say that is a kind of more or less formal position in the OSGEO Foundation. So we created this OSGEO Foundation back in 2006, uh, like an umbrella foundation for various open source projects. And uh, GRASS.US is one of the founding member projects, let's call it, and being, I was also involved in the OSGEO board as a director for five years or so in the beginning, and uh, we said, okay, we need one, let's say, chairperson in each uh, project, uh, being member of OSGEO in order to communicate and also for the legal framework. This is how it was uh, established. We run the consents model. Yeah, it's not about that uh, being uh, a, a dictator is doing things, but it's at most called benevolent dictator so for the <laughs> benefit of the project and the community and so on. Yeah, but in the end, it is consensus model for all these years. Yeah, works like that. Just so that people who are listening, if they're not familiar with OSGEO, basically the open source um, geospatial projects that they might be using, so things like QGIS and GRASS, maybe GeoServer, they're all under the banner, aren't they, of, of OSGEO? That's right. So we have plenty of uh, software projects, but that's not all. So honestly, I didn't check how many there are, maybe 50, maybe more. There are also different levels. You cannot just walk in and say, hello, I'm now a member of OSGEO. But <laughs> you have to undergo something we call incubation. We got that from the Apache uh, project, this idea, and we like it very much. So let's say the projects have to undergo a health check uh, if it is really open source, if there are not uh, any software troubles, if it comes with a healthy community, okay. if it's documented and this and that. Once uh, you have done all your homework, then you graduate from it and become a full member project. There are also community projects. If you are not that big or just fresh, but you want to be, let's say, close to OSGO, then you can also achieve that state. Okay, cool. But as mentioned, it's not only about software, but uh, also about community, the uh, A and O of open source development, the people. And so we maintain like mailing lists and we have conferences. Please come to Bucharest end of the end of August. Oh yes. There's the yeah. OSGEO annual conference this year. Will be maybe 800 people, maybe 1,000 people there, and uh, yeah, I can really highly recommend this kind of conferences this year in Bucharest. There's a, a UK chapter of OSGEO, and I, I'm yes. assuming that there are chapters around the world in different countries. So our listeners should, if they're using um, open source geospatial software, should try and find out whether or not there's a, a chapter for them to and, and sort of try and get involved. Yeah, so please visit osgeo.org and you can see what's there. Uh, there's another uh, branch, let's say, uh, it is called geo for all It's an educational initiative, how to learn things and how to teach uh, open source GIS. And it's not only GIS software, but also about open data and teaching concepts and so forth. Uh, the website is geo for with the number for geo4all.org. And there's a map and you can see where the next chapter is uh, or laboratory is you want to talk to. Uh, you can also open your own and register yourself and so forth. That's brilliant. We'll put those links in the uh, show notes as well. I just want to return to Grass quickly as we have you on the line because we've been doing a few podcast episodes recently about cloud computing and 
given that Grass was started in 1982, did you say? Yes. Yeah. So um, my understanding is that it, it's quite modular in the way that it, it's built up. And do you find that now it's sort of having a, a second life almost or a third life because of this cloud-based uh, computing that people can run scripts and it, it's quite scalable with the infrastructure behind it? Yeah, I would definitely say yes. Um, we are now really leveraging the fact that the software was developed in the 80s when we, there was little uh, memory available, one CPU, uh, maybe several, I don't know, but at least it was really, compared to nowadays, quite restricted, expensive and everything. So yeah. uh, the implementation of the core of the system has been done in a very clever way, modular, as you already mentioned. You don't need much memory. The memory footprint is very low. It's efficient and using uh, yeah, different strategies, how to number crunch large amounts of uh, data. So this concept of modularity also, when it comes to parallelization, you want to run in a Docker, in Docker containers, maybe in OpenShift uh, environments or Kubernetes or whatever it is, yeah, you can just deploy it as such. And uh, the memory footprint is very low. The images are tiny. There's something called Alpine Docker, uh, we just oh, yeah. published uh, a few days ago an image, 71 megabytes, so you can just run it on your smartphone if you insist. Wow, that would be cool. Yeah, we can just leverage all these cloud technologies with uh, layered Docker and whatever you prefer in order to come up with something which is tiny and fast and you deploy it as you wish and so forth. And we've been developing a new system which is called Actinia. Uh, you can find it on GitHub which is a kind of REST API around GraphGIS. And it's not only restricted to GraphGIS, you can also have for the GDAL functionality. Uh, we connected uh, SNAP, that is the uh, European Space Agency software for Copernicus Sentinel data processing in it and other stuff you can package. And then you deploy it on your cloud infrastructure. You can even simulate your cloud on your laptop if you want, all this technology exists. Okay. Uh, pull it from somewhere and just start. And this is something which is a huge improvement over former approaches how to install software. How's that differing from the DS offerings? We can deploy the Actinia software on the DS itself. So imagine DS is like the compute engine, the platform, yep. uh, backend and everything, but you also need your algorithms somehow. Of course, there's something provided, but probably you want to deploy your own fancy algorithm doing this and that. And on top of that, we deploy Actinia. I think you had also an interview about the OpenEO European project. We've got those guys coming up in a couple of weeks, yeah. Okay, so just uh, one remark. So it's about uh, how to have uh, something what is GDAL for data formats. Yeah, GDAL is a, a library which converts between different formats. Uh, we are defining something similar at API level. So we want one API which supports different backends. And one of these backends is uh, this Actinia grass combination. And this can be then deployed on a Diaz, for example. Okay. Cool. So it's really platform agnostic. Yeah, that's right. So I come myself, I spent a lot of years in HPC, high performance computing, in, at my research institute, Fondazione Edmond Mach in Trento, uh, where I worked for many years. And we built up a cluster, so like a big rack of computers connected to each other with hundreds of terabytes of disk space, and we were processing satellite data there for infectious, infectious disease modeling. And from there, all this interest came, and 
in parallel, uh, all this cloud stuff came up, and now we moved it simply to the cloud. And it took, took us, of course, a bit of time, but now it's all there. Uh, you get the code on GitHub. It's open source. You also, your contributions are welcome, of course, if you are seeing some room for improvement. It's uh, the nature of open source to make things better and to contribute. That was going to be my next question is, are you looking for contributors? But it sounds like you are. So that, that's really good. We are open. <laughs> <laughs> and are there any specific skills that you're looking for? I mean, I know quite often when there's discussions around how to contribute that not everybody is a coder and sometimes documentation is important and sometimes infrastructure and other things. So are there specific uh, areas that you're looking for contributions in on this? Yeah, in this, this area, we definitely wish to find people who are willing to test things. And maybe if they try out, they come across limitations in the documentation and would then contribute, okay, why don't you add this snippet here? And these repositories like GitHub or GitLab or whatever it is, they are very invitive. It's super easy to contribute there. Yeah, you can basically open, uh, let's say, the documentation with the built-in uh, text editor, which is in the browser of this platform, and just uh, start typing and you put your snippet there and then you put submit, and it is sitting there as a so-called pull request or merge request uh, to the community of that particular project, maybe Artinia in this case. And then we look at it, we get a notification, and we say, oh, cool, this uh, we didn't think about. And we can merge it in, and it is in the main documentation included. So that is really fancy how you can do things nowadays. And um, also with the GRASS project, we just had a community sprint in Berlin. Uh, last weekend, so I'm more or less just back, and we moved um, all the grass source code to to GitHub in this case, so to Git in general, uh, with the advantage uh, that we have now a modern tool to manage documentation, the source code itself, and deploy it from there in the cloud directly, or uh, generate desktop versions from it, and so forth. Excellent. So um, any of our listeners that want to get involved, I strongly recommend that you uh, have a look at some of these projects and, and try and help out where you can. That sounds really, really cool. So it is how I started. Yeah, it's just uh, okay. take a look and suggest. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody will just criticize your uh, first efforts, for sure not. Or if you have questions, please ask. Questions are definitely welcome. And yes. <laughs> this is how people can learn. Excellent. One of the other questions that I was going to try and bring up is that there seems to be loads of um, really exciting developments happening sort of in the area of cloud processing of geospatial data and in particular of satellite data. Yeah. Are you excited to see how open source in the geospatial area is really beginning to develop? I mean, I would say it's developing faster than some of the commercials, uh, proprietary stuff. Yeah, this is more or less the moment I was hoping for or waiting for for so long time. So when I started, I told you in the 90s, uh, the, that the, the source code political wind, let's call it, was quite different from what it is nowadays. And we were the anarchists or we were the strange people <laughs> sitting in the club <laughs> rooms eating pizza or something like that. Yeah. Okay, I was then moving to Italy, that's true, but uh, there was sun. Yeah, it's not like that, of course. So we were just uh, not giving up and we were continuing believing that the idea of open source development makes sense. It was also just to serve our own needs. Yeah, we needed software, we needed software to do what we had to solve in this particular moment, especially in research uh, academia. It's not that strange to develop like that. 
in business yeah. maybe it used to be more um, I don't know if to say difficult but let's say not obvious so uh, I have a company as you know and here in Bonn and we are an open source shop so people ask us okay now you do everything open source and what are you going to eat tomorrow uh, this is <laughs> one of the common questions but in the end what we offer is a non-black box software yeah you can look into it if you want But we are talking with Grass, for example, we are talking about 700,000 lines of code. Not everybody wants to study that, but probably they only are interested in some functionality and we can lead them to that. So it's a kind of service. And then we are, of course, doing a lot of analysis. So we are using our own tools and developing things. And this is analyzing things and then offering the results to customers. I often hear about many non-geospatial libraries being supported by one or two people mm -hmm. how are we then in in this world in the grass world or in qjs world have we got enough people supporting it yeah that is an important point we talk about bus factor in this context that means that what happens if this person is hit by a bus and then cannot continue yeah. and if it's the the only person to work on a project be it closed source open source doesn't matter the knowledge is basically gone and this must be avoided. And the idea of open source is, of course, uh, to share knowledge and to have everything in a centralized software repository being accessible to others. So this doesn't solve the problem that maybe a few persons are knowledgeable and the others are just bystanders. But in the GRASS project, since we just migrated to, uh, to GitHub, we have all these statistics on the server now. Uh, we identified something like 30 accounts of grass contributors or former contributors who have a github account but i contacted last week uh, roughly 130 people uh, who have who are known to me that they have contributed to grass telling them we just moved to git if you want to uh, have an account back your account back please contact me so active the contributors the statistics say uh, says we have roughly 20 at time And I think 20 people is far away from being at risk. And yeah. uh, it's maybe not 1,000 people, okay, of course, but we are really having good pace at development. And a lot comes in also from research projects, from business projects, and is then contributed to the core of the system. Do you get a sense of the volume of users now? This is a question I always want to know. How many users do we have? Yeah. I honestly don't know. This is maybe the disadvantage of putting it online. But I can tell you that the statistics of the download server in OSGEO say that we uh, get downloaded by one terabyte per month. I asked some fellow sort of GIS type people today, do you use Grass? And if so, how do you use it? Most people have come across it now because it's plugged into the processing toolbox of QGIS. Yes, no, that's possible. I mean, the QGIS interface is just great. Of course, uh, I'm also using it. Why not? I would see Grass as more on the backend side. Backend means that you can really compute a lot of things in super, at super fast uh, speed, which you cannot easily do elsewhere. Reading into what you're saying there, do you think that there'll be a process where you will have your QJS, your GIS or whatever on your desktop and you'll be actually working those commands, calling them straight into the cloud where the data resides? Yeah, this is what we actually are working on because that is for some type of analysis, more or less the future, maybe even the presence already. Uh, when it comes to the Sentinel data, for example, um, you must know that uh, one of the Sentinel satellites, they compare a bit to Landsat, but at higher resolution yeah. and higher temporal resolution. So we are speaking about weekly 
uh, roughly said weekly Earth coverage. Um, so if you want to do a time series on how your field in agriculture is, let's say, going on, that is something you really do not want to download all the raw data, do the processing, atmospheric correction, whatever is needed to then do some zonal statistics on top of that, just to say some of the GIS buzzwords. But uh, in the end, uh, you say, okay, I sent my algorithm from QGIS, for example, through this OpenEO Actinia backend. It goes to one of the DIASs where the data are hosted, and then it does the computation there, and you get back your result. Yeah. And you can do this from your laptop if you want, and you do not have to download half a terabyte of stuff. And uh, this is, I think, really uh, an interesting way of doing uh, GIS analysis nowadays and in future. I think a lot of people will like this sort of local setup, remote processing. Yeah, it's not ready overnight, but uh, work in progress. This sounded like an uh, open earth engine that we talked about <laughs> last time. You're desperate for that to be built, aren't you, Andrew? <laughs> oh, I think that that would be, that would be the thing, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. To be able to access everything from the the browser yeah with the cloud approach i think we are catering for the many at some yeah. point maybe not today but maybe tomorrow uh, just because we can hide quite a bit of complexity we can offer quality algorithms where we know that they work but you don't have to set it up all yourself and what you have to pay for in the end is of course the amount of compute resources being attached here and maybe some small overhead but in the end it's not much so I think here it starts to scale and become interesting. I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop it there. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and telling us about various things to do with open source and OSGO and uh, Grass and everything else. I'm sure we could probably record about four or five episodes with you. <laughs> If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Matt underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thanks very much for listening. That's it for now. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. And goodbye. Bye-bye. Um sexy <laughs> Path is not an easy one to walk through So take me with you You don't have to go alone The life is growing I could ask you to pick up Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.